I, I know it's cost us a lot of time. It's definitely cost us money more than once, but that's how we run our business. That's the voice of Anthony DeVito, co-owner, alongside his brother Rob DeVito, of IR Custom. And I'm excited to talk with both of them right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Rob and Anthony DeVito, co-owners of the Lake Zurich, Illinois-based furniture company, IR Custom. How did two brothers who started out selling t-shirts end up making furniture for customers all over the world? building out office spaces for major companies, and creating custom work for some of your favorite YouTube stars? Well, from stolen designs, to shipping nightmares, to getting mysteriously kicked off of Instagram with no warning, Rob and Anthony have been through it all. And that is exactly why they are the perfect people to share their story. Follow along as we talk about developing a brand, dealing with knockoffs, the truth behind shipping, and much more. Rob and Anthony have so much to talk about, so let's jump right in and hear their story in their own words. We got an unconventional start into the furniture world. We started in the printing industry. We, we did t-shirt printing for a number of years before, you know, we realized that that wasn't really our passion. We just decided one day that we wanted to try our hand at building some things, you know, picked up a few tools here and there. Um, I, I came from a graphic design background, so obviously the design portion was heavily on me where I did things that now looking back, <laughs> I don't know if they were possible to build, um, but, you know, we, we kind of dove in head first and it, it, it's kind of taken a life of its own, honestly. I pretty much moved out when I was 18 and started working. I went to college for a short time and then went straight into finance. I traded stock options for a number of years. And then, uh, you know, as Rob got older, he went into graphic design and arts and he wanted to start a t-shirt company a short while after doing that. And, you know, I kind of thought it was a decent idea. So we did that. And like he had mentioned that just, you know, neither one of us really enjoyed it. It was okay. It became a lot of just, all right, we're doing this just to, make some money and it was a constant just battle because of that because of the industry it is so uh we we started making small furniture pieces for ourselves and then a couple other people saw them and wanted one and it, we actually started in reclaimed furniture which we could go on for hours about what certain people's views are of 
reclaim products versus the reality of what it could or couldn't be depending upon who's making it and how much time and effort they want to put in. And we, we started off in the Randolph markets, which was, you know, a small, what would you call it, Anthony, a flea market, I guess. There's a number of them across the, the country now. They call them, you know, makers markets or they, I mean, 30 years ago, they probably call them craft fairs, but now it's definitely a little higher end now, more more craft product. Yeah, but we found a good footing there, you know, and that kind of uh, narrowed down our market for us where we found, you know, we, we like to put a lot of time, effort, customize things. And going there, we found you built a seven foot table, your customer wanted an eight foot table. You built that eight foot table, the next customer wanted a six foot table. Um, you know, so that kind of narrowed down our market to where we were looking and, you know, we just decided to go with a build to order model. It doesn't work for everybody, but you know, right, the markets really, they either work or they don't for some people. And, you know, they just didn't work for our product. Even going forward now, we've progressed to the point where, you know, people have been asking us for, if somehow we could get to some lower price points and we've tried to work into some new, some new more standard products, even side tables and things. And it's amazing, even out of those, how many messages we get like, Hey, can you make it a couple inches thinner? Can you make it a couple inches longer? Um, and the way that we're set up, we're able to do that. But I know a lot of, a lot in the furniture industry is very standardized and we're essentially the antithesis of that. It's like not a single thing we do is standard, normal, basic at all your business plan is all about custom furniture and customizing and and making it for the client but your design sense is very much your own if people look at pictures of your work they automatically know it's yours you have a very stylized look specific to you how did you come to this style you started with reclaimed, you started doing wood furniture and you moved into a very specific look. How did that come about? What was that, that moment or a lot of moments that you said, this is what we're going to be doing? Yeah. So, you know, I think Anthony might've touched on it when he was talking about the reclaimed stuff earlier. Um, you know, we found the, I enjoyed that style personally, you know, I still do, but I think there's a lack of appreciation for the work that goes into a reclaimed piece. Um, you know, the general public will look at a reclaimed piece and just think, you know, oh, you got that out of the garbage, you found it out of the dumpster. Where in all honesty, we found that a reclaimed piece takes more labor than getting a, a rough sawn piece of lumber and milling it square. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about metal. You don't have to worry about a lot of things. Um, so at that point, I think that may have been the real turning point when we realized, you know, if we really want to kind of make it in this and make some money possibly from this business, we need to streamline things. So we decided we're going to go all brand new materials straight from suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. So we pivoted towards, you know, clean woods, clean lines, clean steel. Um, and I'm a big fan of modern minimalist looks, um, as is quite apparent by many of the designs. Um, but I like that bold pop of color. And 
when we first got into it, it was one of those things where we weren't very skilled in metalwork. So what we did was we tried to find our shortcuts and ways to get around the things that we knew how to do or had the capabilities of doing. Um, one of our first things, you know, we thought we had a flat table. No one has a flat table till you really get into it and you get a good fixture table. Nowadays, luckily, we're we're lucky enough to have some great fixture tables. But um, I found, you know, if I take a standardized tube and I cut it at angles, we can make some really cool pieces. So with some basic wood panel work, you know, if you learn glue ups and things like that, you can basically make a pretty nice tabletop, desktop, whatever you choose. And then when it got to the metal work, we really had to kind of throw, <laughs> throw caution to the wind and dive in head first. We picked up a cheap welder. Um, we picked up a cheap plasma cutter. Uh, we picked up a cheap bandsaw and we dove right in. And, you know, we used to make some some fixtures for our things. We messed up plenty, uh, but it's been a trial by fire. And, you know, I think the style has actually been a bit of a form of necessity towards uh, our tools, our working abilities and things of that nature. You know, so it, it kind of evolved from necessity, but I, I've come to kind of, like you said, it, it's kind of a style of its own. It's kind of known to us. So I try to stay in that groove, but at the same time, we try to always innovate and come up with new things to add to it. We aren't, and we'll never claim to be like custom cabinetry guys. We, we get calls for that because we have CNC machines like, hey, can you, can you make me this? Can you make me that? And a lot of times, whereas when we first started, we tried, we'd take any job we kind of turn those down at this point and just, you know, we're, we're not the right people for everyone. Um, so when it, when it comes into how do we keep our style and integrate what our clients want, if our clients aren't kind of already in the mindset of they like our previous pieces and style, it, it's probably not the best project for both parties. We we have a lot out there and we won't turn people away by any means. But uh, like you said, they, they kind of have a general idea of our style, the, the pop colors, the simpleness, et cetera. But uh, the way I typically work is, you know, I'll ask a client to send me a picture or two of one of the pieces that they saw that they liked. Um, and then we start from there with general sizes and I, I like to pride myself on giving every client a unique experience. We work with them very closely. Like we said, it's just the two of us here. So from sales, first contact, and all the way through shipping and install, we're on hand. We're the ones that are there. So we work very closely with them. And I give each one a series of designs to pick, choose. And I try to not make anyone's the same. You know, we don't pick from one client and be like, hey, do you like this? Because everybody's got their own thing, you know, and the best way to do that is to see what they like and build off of that. Getting customers, and you said in the beginning you were going to fairs, to crafts fairs, makers fairs, whatever you want to call it. But as you got more and more into your company, you went more and more online with your work and that's how you were getting a lot of your clients and your style yes is very 
you when it comes to the actual building of the furniture, but you definitely have a very specific style for your brand. And that, I think, just as much as the furniture you're making, the branding that you're doing is bringing people in. It's a very, very bold but clean look that really matches your furniture well. How did you get to that point where you figured out how you were going to brand yourself? And then how did you keep that consistent for so many years? So people really got to know your brand through that look. You know, uh, it's a lot uh, of guesswork and a lot of pain. <laughs> he, you know, he hit it. He, Anthony hit it on the head right there. You know, uh, we we didn't get there easily. Um, like I, like we mentioned, I have a graphic design background, and it all started there. We did the printing. I did a lot of logos, layouts, and things for other clients along the way, and kind of found my kind of found my style within their styles. It, it's taken a lot to get there. We've had a few name changes along the way, which we always joke about. But uh, you know, the custom branding uh, it's it's a very general word. You know, sometimes we second guess ourselves on doing it and keeping it so simple um, because, you know, we could put our website all over it. We could do a bunch of things and we have. But, you know, like you mentioned, it's it's very an iconic style to us and our brand to keep it simple, clean and uh, bold at, at, at all facets from branding to the pieces. So it. it so it goes together very well. And, you know, it's one of those things that's just evolved over time. We, we kind of enjoy the way it is, which makes it easier. Um, I, there's constant discussions to, do we change it up? Do we do something different? And people ask us where the name comes up from all the time. It's like, at this point, it's just kind of funny because it was like, we were industrial reclaim. And then we decided to start doing custom pieces. So it was like, that's literally where it came from it doesn't there's no like there's no names hidden in the letters there's no family ties to anything it's and, and we've talked about changing that and we're like you know what we finally or at least we felt we finally reached a point where it's like people kind of equate that custom logo with our stuff um so we've just decided to keep it there whether or not that's true or not it, it may just be our view but uh that's what we're going with <laughs> Yeah, we're glad to hear you appreciate it, and hopefully others do as well. Branding yourself like that with a name specifically that can be different things, you are a perfect example of somebody who changed dramatically what you do, but you kept the same name and the same concept throughout, even though you were starting with reclaimed furniture, and now you do steel and powder coated and clean lines so having that that open name gives you the latitude to move back and forth and make decisions while you grow but not have to change your brand every single time 100 percent um you know that that was a decision we made with a lot of thought but you know it was one of those things where we wanted versatility and as a business, if you can build a brand with versatility and you can move whichever direction you like, it, it, it's a big thing for us because um, having to change the name, we did it. We hated doing it. It's a pain in the butt. 
but being able to move genres, you know, if if we want to build something else, if we want to design something else at any point, we're in that branding. And as you said, the, if we can keep that branding bold and in your face, that's perfect for us. Having such a distinct style like you do leads to people wanting to copy that style in a, a positive way because they love the way it looks and they think that they want to do something like that. And also in sometimes a negative way where they feel like you're controlling that corner of the market and they want a piece of that. You've been very good if you look through all of the content that you put out there of watermarking, but even beyond watermarking, just pasting your name all over everything. Was that something that you you started from the beginning, knowing that you wanted to make sure in this wide world of the internet, your ideas stayed your own and could be traced back to you? Or is it something that you learned after run-ins with people who were stealing your designs? I wish we learned that in the beginning. <laughs> I, 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 Rob, at one point, got so annoyed with people stealing things. That is why you will... And, and there's probably, like, if you were to look over over time, there's probably a progression of how much, how many logos went over new designs. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know at one point you were done with it. Like, I, I, I swear yeah. if I get one more stolen design. Yeah. You know, it, it was, it, it took a while. Um, in the beginning, it, it was frustrating. And I, I think to anybody that puts in the time that we do to what we do and anybody that does it, you know, they would understand. They feel a little bit of a slight, but you know, I had a lot of good people around me that don't have a daily view of what we do. And they're like, you know what, look at it as a compliment. I, it took me a good couple of years of honestly, yes, reporting other accounts that were stealing the products. And honestly, it was just an unhealthy thing for me at the end of the day. And nowadays, you know, we we've learned to accept it. it you can't control it, especially an overseas thing or anything of that nature. You're not going to touch it. Um, local people, you know, people in the U.S., they're always open and willing to tag you, talk to you, ask you questions. And we've learned to answer the questions, you know, look at it in a positive way, always be out there to help people because just being grumpy about it and being like, don't do that. It looks like my stuff. You're not going to win. And you're, you're only hurting yourself at the end of the day. Yeah. The, the funny part is people that have actually contacted us, the people that are legitimately interested in trying to build it. When you get into it, there's a reason we have we have put so much time and effort and energy into certain things because, like Rob said, it's not a healthy thing to just be like, oh, I'm sick of these people trying to steal our stuff. So at, at some point, we came to the, you know what? We know how much time and energy goes into it if you want to try to make it. Even like you mentioned, you know, my branding, I put it on everything. I keep it everywhere. And, you know, I try to keep it now to where it's simple. It's there. You see it. It's in there. If you know it, you know it. And like you said, I let the style speak for itself. You know, it, if you're looking for us, you can find us on the internet if you look hard enough, <laughs> you know? So we, we kind of let the style speak for itself nowadays is what we've learned. Speaking about 
looking hard enough to find you on the internet. And I feel like this is a good segue into <laughs> every company's worst nightmare. You had developed a very good following on social media, on Instagram, and then the bottom fell out. Your account got deactivated, got taken away. And that could be a killing blow for people because you're still working, you're still making things and your company's still functioning, but there goes a tremendous amount of the eyes on your work. You're not a, a local only company. You're a worldwide company. Can you talk about that experience and and what it was like going through it and how you're you're building yourself back up? Yeah, you know, like you said, uh, we're still going through it. Um, but it, it's one of those things where I've learned and I've heard it plenty of times and I knew it had to be done, but you have to stay diverse. Um, you can't lean on one platform. Instagram was our big platform. It was the most reach that we had all of our clients we had dms with back to god knows how long ago um you know and it, and it did hurt it, it hurt it happened twice we got it back once we didn't we haven't yet gotten it back the second time so you know we're building from the ground up um luckily a lot of people have found us uh but like you said we're not a local company in I mean, we've only done a few local jobs. We operate a lot to the West, Southwest, um, straight South. You know, we, we get around the United States and that did hurt, but you can't dwell on it. Uh, you just got to keep going. If you keep posting and you post good content, people will find you. Um, you know, the reach is there. Even, even at 30 some thousand followers that we had, I don't know how much of them were quality followers to say, you know, um, they engage our content or whatever. Whereas I feel the 3,500 that we have ballpark right now is a well-engaged uh, group. We get a lot of story views. We get a fair amount of likes. We get a lot of views on our reels where, you know, you got to find the positive in it where it does stink, but, you know, you just got to keep going. Otherwise you will go down with the ship. I think the most the most aggravating thing currently that comes of it is, and it's a message we get frequently. Oh, I was so happy you guys popped back up in my feed. I didn't know what happened to you. It's like nothing happened to us. We we've been plugging <laughs> away just the same. That which which Rob is right. If if you let that consume you, um, it's it's aggravating to a whole new level because it's not. If it had been something you had done wrong, you can look at that and be like, you know what? I said the wrong thing. I, I made a mistake, whatever the situation may be. But when it's one of those things when you just kind of get rug pulled, like, yep, no explanation, no nothing. You know, we're not a political posting group. We don't do anything. We're not hating on anybody. You know, we just post our designs and our furniture and our builds. And, you know, like Anthony said, we, we just wanted some explanation. I guess that's the part that hurts. But the same time, maybe it'll come back someday. So <laughs> you never know. You are obviously still in business, even though social media can be the the all-consuming eye of, of how people find people. You are still in business with social media or without it. And we talked about how you're not a local company. You're shipping all across the country and sometimes all across the world. And with that, 
comes an interesting conversation about pricing because you're in your local area. And when people are dealing with local clients, they can price for that area. But you're pricing for people all over. So there's no real standard of pricing except for what you come up with. How has your pricing developed over time from when you you started to now? And how are you pricing out each and every custom piece as it comes? It's interesting that you, you bring it up on a local level. Um, and we used to try to just be ultra competitive with everyone like where you know what can we do how can we do it and then i'm not rob i don't know if you know exactly when the turning point was but there was some point where we looked at each other and said you know what here's the situation we make it work just outside of chicago which obviously is not one of the cheapest areas um so at some point we looked at it and went this is the cost of our materials this is how much we need to make to stay, to keep our doors open. And we kind of just looked at our costs and said, you know what, this is the price that we produce items at. We're definitely not the cheapest. Uh, and I know that, and I know that that upsets some people and they think we can, we think we could do it cheaper. And if we wanted to scale it and ship it all overseas and just say designed and built in the USA, which by the way, I, that is a serious issue of mine as to how certain things get labeled. Like if you, if you say made in America, I expect someone's hands to be working with in the States to actually do the work. And don't get me wrong. I understand design is part of it, but that doesn't mean it was produced here. Pricing is one of those things that's been crazy for us. It, it's developed over time, but like Anthony said, it comes down to the quality materials that we use. We, we look at what we would want. You know, we want a solid hardwood, not a veneer. Um, we want a steel, not a plastic or a wood. Um, we want a powder coat, not a paint. So when it comes to that, you just look at it and you have to say, this is what it costs. <laughs> and um, at the end of the day, we think that we charge quite competitively for someone offering what we offer. And, you know, at some point you have to look at your business and see what works for you. And if it doesn't work for you, then it's just simple. Um, you have to price your price. And if people don't agree with it, then you just move on and that's not your client. That's probably the hardest thing to swallow out of anything is you're not going to be able to compete with everyone, no matter how much you want a job, a, a certain job or a certain client. Sometimes it just doesn't work. You've been doing this for a while and you have a good idea of where your pieces are selling and the type of clients you're selling to. Do you go after specific markets, specific places, specific types of clients, or are you still casting a wide net and then talking to whoever comes in? Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that we constantly debate. Um, but we, I mean, obviously our designs are very modern. Many would say masculine. So 
we cat like as you said, we cast a wide net. I I still don't only market to males. If you look at our marketing, you know the results that we get from Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, uh, all the ones that we run ads on. Um, we skew male. It, there there's no denying that, but. We also have a lot of female interior designers and female clients. You know, it might not show up in our ads, but we've had a lot of interest from females. So we don't want to keep it narrow. We try to keep it wide, but we have found that we definitely thrive in the commercial environment. Um, we, we started in homes. We did a lot of dining tables, et cetera. And we still do some dining tables, but um, we've definitely skewed commercial and, you know, doing office buildouts, conference tables, um, desks for executives and their employees, uh, you know, but we, we it's a broad range. We've done some car dealerships that we've outfitted, you know. I, I don't know how familiar you are with certain industries, but Traxxas, the RC car manufacturer, we did three conference tables for them. And then we shipped a couple of pieces out for Microsoft offices and a couple of turner offices and it's like so as much as we want to narrow it down sometimes we look back and realize it's probably not the best move but you know i mean that's always up for debate it, it's an interest that's an interesting dynamic for sure because like rob said we discuss this all the time because we can look at our ad spend and our numbers and say okay this is who's viewing it but when you do compare them against our actual sales they don't always line up so that that's that's where the the wide net still gets cast, and like Rob said, we we definitely found that our our niche was definitely commercial buildouts, but you you always have to be ready to pivot because when a pandemic hits and everyone's staying at home, not a lot of office buildouts going on, not a lot of people going into offices, not a whole lot of conference rooms being yeah. conceptualized and built. The the conference room tables took the biggest hit, but luckily people still like their home offices to look good. <laughs> yeah, so the, like the past couple of years, we have done quite a few more executive desks for homes versus commercial office spaces. Your your marketing really sounds like a mix of following the numbers, but also following your heart and your eyes and and what you're seeing out there that might be a little bit different than the numbers. And you have to be able to to understand that it is your company. And yes, if all the numbers are pointing one way, then you should probably go that way. But if there's a toss up, then you have to go with your heart. You have to go with what got you to this point because you live and breathe this company and you know it. You, you have to find the middle, you know, um, you got there on instincts, you know, we, we built this on doing what we thought was right. And you got to follow the numbers. The numbers don't lie most of the time, but at the same token, you got to be willing to take a risk, step outside your comfort zone. You know, it, it's one of those things where it, it's a constant debate between us. Marketing choices will always, you know, do we put this color background on our piece? Do we, put our logo this big? Do we put it here? Do I make a reel with it? You know, with Instagram being the way it is. So it, it's a constant experiment and you learn something every time, you know? I, I think what we found that I think we both find the most interesting is 
how someone else views whatever you put out there being being a two-man company you know we don't have a marketing department we don't have all these people that are that is their sole job um so we go with what we think is right and sometimes our friends our family see it and they say something to us and we're like how did you derive that like that was that was not what we saw coming at all which which i think is part of just humanity and why it's interesting because like no matter what your intention may have been someone may interpret it completely differently you can do all the work you want internally and you can have all the discussions and you can make as many changes but the second you put it out there other people are going to look at it and they're going to judge it the way they want so you definitely can't live in a set aside biosphere of your own making you have to understand your clients and you have to talk to your clients and that leads me into your client process when you're talking to your clients how that works they've seen your work and they've had a positive reaction to it they like what they see and they come to you and say i want one of your pieces what does that look like because you have a lot of different materials, you're working with people all across the country, and you need to make sure that what you're talking about is what actually shows up at their home or business. What does that process look like for you? I like to pride our business on working very closely with our clientele. Um, we charge what we charge for a reason, and I feel like we have second and none service. Um, but it's one of those things where People will normally come to us and it started out with, we had nothing on the website. It was just pictures, no prices, no anything. And uh, back when it was like that, we'd receive a lot of DMs, you know, just generally asking pricing. Um, that would weed out a lot of people and whatnot. So we decided, you know, we'll put up a couple of desks on the website to give people a general idea of our pricing. Because like you said, everything is different. The materials are different. The people are in different places. They have different needs. So basically it will start with an email and we'll normally prompt a client, like I said, to send us a photo or two of something they liked and the size. If they have no idea on size, we can work from there, but typically a size is where we like to start. And um, from there we take their size and we'll work through a couple ideas, you know, see what they're, work what they're looking at, possibly even a budget if they have one, but a lot of clients don't. Um, but the one thing that we do that I feel is a little bit different from everybody else is we pride ourselves on our rendering process. So once we have a deposit, we do require a deposit from every client because you don't want to get burned. We've been burned once and that was enough for us to learn to take a deposit. Um, we require 50% deposit based on the size and material descriptions. So let's say a client wants a seven foot by three foot walnut desk we have a general idea of what they're looking at. Um, we like to pride ourselves on knowing what it's gonna be and staying within that budget, even if it bites us a little bit in the end. Um, so once that deposit is taken, we'll then start the renderings where you know I'll work with them back and forth, normally send three renderings, three to four renderings based on our discussions. And then from there, they can come back with anything. You know, we can change, we can start over from scratch. Sometimes I have a client that picks one that I sent to them and they're like, that's it. That's what I want. End of story. 
um, we we don't really have a limit on our revisions, especially with our clients. Um, so we'll go back and forth until they're happy. And that 3D rendering doesn't only serve as theirs to keep, that's our blueprint as well. I take everything from Fusion 360 and I extrapolate it to our build from there. I have our measurements, our sizes, everything's the scale. So that picture and rendering that the client has is what they're gonna get in the end. And if they don't, <laughs> you know, that's on us. So the rendering process is the key that I've found in our business. It's a lot of labor, but there's no confusion in the end. Like you said, what's gonna show up when they open their crate, you know, it's gonna be their rendering. And I always jokingly say to my brother, when we finish a piece and step back, I go, hey, it actually looks like the rendering, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. And the response always is 100% of the time. If it didn't, we screwed up. <laughs> yeah. So that I, I I think Rob nailed it on the head. We do have a definitely different design process, but the ability to show someone a digital model of this, this is your piece. I, I think that really, if you need to sum up our process and our and our kind of theories of how we work, it's digital renderings. Here's your piece. We're going to make this. Do you send samples out? Do you send material samples out for color confirmations or wood type confirmations? Or is it all digital? It's surprisingly not often that we get a client that demands a sample. Um, typically, a lot of our clients are familiar with the woods that they're asking for. If they're not, we've sent out samples. We have no problem. Like I said, the customer service that we strive for is to go above and beyond. You know, we don't want to work at the standard we want to go above that and um they asked for samples and then powder coating you know when we got into it we didn't understand it that it's a different color sample you know it's an ral chart versus a, a pantone chart where we came from printing so we always try because monitors are different you know your monitor your green might look different than my green so i always have the client pick out a color for them on their end. If they, if there's, if we're unsure of anything, we send out Pantone books or RAL books and they pick on, they pick from a book directly. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're happy to send out samples if requested. Um, I think the hardest part is a lot of times, especially in the metal is one thing we can send you a color chart and that's going to be the color that that metal turns out. Uh, when it gets into natural materials like wood, though, we can send you a piece of walnut, but, you know, it, it, it's like looking at paint on a wall. When you're looking at a two inch by two inch square, it's very hard to get the entire picture of what that's going to look like. So that's that's where our sample pieces are a little bit different than um, why we don't necessarily go physical samples as often as digital. I have to say that. I really love the furniture that you guys make and I love the style, but I also love your company for a reason totally different than your furniture and what you make. And it's because everything you do seems like the hardest part of the furniture industry. And it's a great teaching experience talking to you about it and hearing how you're dealing with it because you went from one extreme, the reclaimed furniture to now 
only powder coated steel and cleaned up wood. And so that was a dramatic change. You went from being local to being international. That was a dramatic change. You went from having social media as your main way you're getting clients. And then that went away and you had to change from that. And now you're also dealing with another one of the hardest parts of the furniture industry, and that is shipping large pieces of furniture all over the country. Let's talk about shipping and the the headaches and stress that comes along with that and how you're dealing with that for every single one of your pieces. Rob, does it sound like he just went down a list of our nightmares <laughs> for the last several years? Yeah, yeah, that that's a trial. That's another trial by fire. You know, it's something you have zero idea getting into it. And you're just like, okay, you build it and you're like, now how are we going to get it there? Not not only get it there, but get it to where it needs to be in the space. You know, uh, logistics, we're, we're logistics amateurs that we think are pros on the side. Um, my, my brother's figured out he deals with all the shipping and everything. And all the back and forth. And, you know, we've kind of found a streamlined method <laughs> out of all of it. You know, we kind of have a good method to it now where we build the crate, you pick it up, you load it up. And if you can ship it complete, ship it complete, but you have to make it either fit on a tailgate or <laughs> have a tow truck, pick it up. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's my number one, rule and this is nothing against logistics people shipping people don't jump down my throat don't trust shipping brokers because unfortunately even when they're trying to do their best the rules in logistics change daily what's overweight what's over length how much each of those charges is um like rob said we we try to be as customer focused as possible and that entails on our end learning all the ins and outs of every industry you deal in as much as you can. I know way, way too much about freight. Like I have never wanted to know anything about LTL and whole truck freight in my life. And I know more than my brain can now contain, to be honest. <laughs> it, it's crazy because we've gotten to the point where we've outfitted our, for, for our, for our installs, we've outfitted our own trailer and have a driver that takes our trailer and delivers pieces for us. We have had dedicated van drivers take pieces for us. Um, if it is under 92 inches in length, we know we can fit it on a lift gate. Like you need to learn all these little things and it's, and it's really difficult. Um, I mean, there are certain parts of the U S where we have flatbed tow truck drivers that we call and they pick up at a trucking terminal and these guys have dealt with our stuff before. So they know what the crate's going to look like and they can drop it right in clients, garages or parking lots for them. We, I feel like we probably make things more difficult, but we've actually had to create our own ways of distribution. And in fact, we have a piece that's being worked on right now that needs to go to Switzerland and, uh, that's going to be a lot of phone calls. We've been lucky enough to do a couple of uh, deaths for YouTubers uh, like Chris Ramsey and Peter McKinnon and Tanner Fox. And 
you know, when you're shipping it to them, you're just like, oh, I hope it makes it there. And Chris Ramsey was actually our first one to Canada. And all kinds of things went wrong. They sent it out for delivery and made Chris unpack it in the back of the truck and bring it inside. He was he was one of the best clients, I will say that, because after he was totally cool about it. He didn't really say much to us at all. And then we found out later on, like, what had really happened. And we're like, dude, why didn't you call us? Like, yeah. I, I, I'd have been pissed. Yeah. And, and but, Peter uh, is actually friends with Chris. And when Peter ordered his desk, he was like, I just don't, I want to make sure what happened to Chris didn't happen. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> and multiple people lined up for that next Canadian job. Like, yeah. No? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Who's our new customs broker? <laughs> yeah. You know, like Anthony said, you know, it, it's been a lot of learning along the way and learning things that we didn't think we needed to ever know. But, um, you know, we started off by going and installing everything that that was our solution was be there, you know, um, with conference tables, you got to be there. You can't you can't expect a client to install conference tables unless they're telling you they can. Um, so that's where we got that idea. And we would go install desks. We do all that. But then, you know, we decided at the end of the day, let's simplify it. Let's keep it easy. And then COVID hit. So then it was a necessity. So we designed and started shipping things that a client could assemble easily, um, could take apart, came apart, went into a house easily, you know, fit through a standard door, et cetera. But uh, the COVID was a great thing for us to learn logistics because we weren't able to be there. Um, And it, it was a great time for us to figure out our best tactics and methods to get our clients the pieces in the best shape that they can be. And that's literally when you work in bigger pieces like we do, um, that is part of the discussions. It's not just, hey, what piece do you want? It's where is it going? Is is there any difficulties in getting it there? Do you do you live in a condo building? I mean, one of our first jobs ever is in the US Bank Tower in LA on the 36th floor. Let me tell you that's where we learned we needed to know more about logistics. <laughs> Big 100%. learning lesson. One hundred percent. It didn't fit through the elevator. Uh, it, it didn't fit anywhere, but we we got it to fit. You know, it was one of those times where you go in with no authority and you just keep walking through the doors until somebody tells you to stop. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it, 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 it went wrong on many facets, but, you know, it, it got in and we learned what not to do again. Let's just say Rob and I unpacked a tractor trailer in 430 traffic in downtown L.A. blocking a street. <laughs> not getting arrested was our goal that, that was our goal i hear you about the the stresses of installs and it's not fun even when it goes well if you're delivering large furniture like that it's it's not great but that brings me to something that i wanted to talk with both of you about because you're saying you're learning all the logistics, you're doing the deliveries and figuring that out. You're doing the design, you're doing the customer service, you are doing the marketing, you're doing everything in this company. And I'm sure it's a lot on your shoulders, but you've been doing it for a while and you're doing it well. People looking at your company from the outside, the way you present, you present as a bigger company. And I think that it has to do with the way you've branded yourself, going back to that. 
when you're dealing with clients, are they thinking you're a bigger company and you're saying, no, it's really just us two? And is the idea of you being a bigger company something that you're projecting out there and something that you're consciously doing? Or do you think it just comes from your design and brand choices? We have never, our goal has never been to portray ourselves as a large company. It's, it's never been a fake it till you make it type scenario. Like we're very open. We'll tell you it's the two of us. You're, you know, people are welcome to come by as long as, you know, we have the capacity to, in a little bit of time to see or talk to you. Um, and I'm not sure, I, I, I feel the perception probably comes across in honestly the amount of hours and time and effort that we both put in. Because if you were to total up the two of us put in, I don't, it's a lot of people. If we were on, if we were hourly pay scale, like we should be doing really well. Yeah. You know, like, I, I think like you mentioned, Ethan, it's, it's come from the branding. Um, it, it's not a, a purposeful thing, but I'm a fan of clean. I'm a fan of simple. I'm a fan of you know, making things quality. And I think there may be a common misconception with quality and size um, where somebody might look at, you know, we started in a small space. I took pictures in the small space. If you look close, you can see how tight we were with metal and woodworking. You know, it's a constant overlap. But um, I think the quality is where that's the difference. You can put quality out of a garage, you know, it's one of those things. And I think that's where people have the common misconception where we're not out there, you know, we don't necessarily put our faces to our brand very much, whether that's good or bad, you know, we, we have both sides of that. Um, but we don't hide the fact that it's just the two of us. We just don't make it that known. And I think people see our products and just assume that we have big equipment. We have a bunch of people making it and, you know, we take pride in it, just the two of us doing all this quality work. And we do just about everything in-house that we can. You know, we, we found in-house quality can't be touched because it's your company at the end of the day. You can't expect somebody outside to care as much about your company as you do. So our quality is number one. And that's what we found is that maybe that's a common misconception that people see. You know, we've talked about trying to bring in people for different roles and whatnot. And we are still brothers. So we are definitely difficult to work with. I mean, my own wife doesn't even enjoy really getting between us when we're at each other about something, but um, it, we have, we have a very high standard of what's going to leave this place and how, and that's been one of our things from the beginning. Like if we don't, if we don't like it, it doesn't leave here. And uh, I, I know it's cost us a lot of time. It's definitely cost us money more than once, but that's, that's how we run our business. I know I brought up a lot, of, uh, a lot of pain points when I described all the things that you do that are hard in the industry, but I said that because I know that you're dealing with it well, and I know that you're, you're having these difficult situations, but you're coming out of them stronger as a company and as business owners. There are people who are looking to get into the furniture business and they're hearing your story and they're thinking, I want to be like them. I want to have a company like them. 
And there's people who have been in the business for a long time and who hear what you're saying and they know those pain points. They hear what you're saying and they they feel that pain alongside of you. Out of all of the things that you've had to deal with, what's some advice that you could share that's helped you run your business better? You know, I, I think my biggest takeaway from everything and the biggest piece of advice that I could give to anybody is, you know, do what you do and do it well. Um, I You take inspiration from everybody. You know, you look around, you take inspiration, but you want to be different. I found that being different has been our biggest strong suit. Um, and diversify. Never be afraid to try something else. You know, um, try new methods, pick up new tools all the above, but just always listen to yourself and, you know, then just stay true to yourself at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I know that probably sounds somewhat cliche to some people, but it is one of those things that like, there's going to be hard times. There's no way around that. So you just have to be confident or enjoy what you're doing enough to keep doing it. I hear what you're saying. And it sounds like you both, even through the fights and the hard times that you are really loving what you're doing. And so I do want to thank you both for, for sitting down and for sharing your story and your knowledge and your experience in the industry. And I wish you all the best of success moving forward in your business. Appreciate you having us on. Yeah. We appreciate you taking the time and uh, reaching out and refinding us on Instagram. And uh, you know, we're hoping a few other people do as well. Yeah, if you want to increase that by 100 fold, that'd, that'd be great too. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.